0: This small volcanic island is just a little over eight square miles. Now, to kind of help you kind of put that into perspective, the city of Kennedale is a little over six square miles. Uh, So it's not very big. Uh, The city of Kennedale could fit uh, on that island. So it's about eight square miles. What makes this island unique, however is that 75 years ago, on February 19th, what was taking place on that island, what began on that island, was a six-week battle that was for the control of this piece of real estate. In this battle, there was 110,000 U.S. Marines who fought. Of those 110,000 Marines, 26,000 of them died, and 20,000 were wounded. This occurred during World War II, And during World War II, there were 82 Medal of Honor recipients who were Marines. Uh, During the course of World War II, uh, uh, again, there were more Medal of Honor recipients, but from from the branch of the Marine Corps, 82 received the Medal of Honor. Of those 82, 22 of them, over a fourth of them, were recipients who fought in this battle. That tells you how fierce the fighting was in this battle. The most iconic picture from the, from the Pacific theater of the war was taken during this battle. This is probably, you already know, if you don't know by now, uh, you know by looking at this picture what island that we're talking about. Uh, this, this picture has been uh, uh, circulated all throughout from the time it occurred, it's, it's, it's been uh, encapsulated in, in bronze, a statue. The island, as you, I'm sure that you're well aware of, is uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, and, and in describing these men, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, and for all of you who are native Texans, you ought to know where he was born, uh, grew up in Fredericksburg, uh, ch- uh, ch- uh, and he was the last Fleet Admiral alive that, that, uh, in, our, in our nation's history. Uh, Fleet Admiral uh, Chester Nimitz said this, quote, "...among the Americans serving on Iwo Island, uncommon valor was a common virtue." Among the Americans serving on Iwo Island, uncommon valor was a common virtue. Now, why would these Marines uh, knowingly pay such a high cost? Well, the reason was because this island was identified to be so strategic that duty called them to make the necessary sacrifice. And as followers of Jesus Christ, of those of us who claim to know Jesus as believers, duty calls us as well To make sacrifices, calls us to make sacrifices. Now, today's text that we're looking at states certain duties that we have been called to perform. Now, we 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 looked last time, as you recall from last week, we looked at again. We're studying Jesus' parables. And the parable that we looked at last week was found in verses 7 through 10. It's entitled, if you've got a a, a copy of the scriptures that has little titles for paragraphs, oftentimes it's known as the parable of the unworthy servants. The word is doulos there, which actually, a better understanding, Jesus is talking about unworthy, it's the parable of the unworthy slave. And Jesus tells this parable after giving these duties that as believers we are to perform and letting us know that it is our duty to do these things. Now, again, we serve Christ, certainly. We want to serve Christ out of love. Uh, We want to serve Christ out of gratitude. But in serving Christ, it's not an either or, it's an and both. We serve Christ because of, of our love for Him. We serve Christ because we're so grateful for what He's done in our life. But there's also a duty aspect to it as well. It's the right thing to do. It's simply the right thing to do because of who God is and what He's done, and who I am. It is the right thing for me to do, as as Paul talks about. It is our reasonable service, uh, and that word "service" is latro, which is another term for worship. That that therefore, therefore, brothers, I, I I beseech you by the mercies of God, and He's talking about that all the things that He talks about in Romans one through eleven, because of all these things because of justification and sanctification and glorification and the presence of the Spirit in your life. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, those mercies in chapters 1 through 11, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. It is the, the reasonable thing to do. It's the right thing to do. As we found in, in, in what we looked at last week, that as, as you recall, Jesus likens the disciples... To Roman slaves. He, he, he gives us this parable. It's a parable that we say, well, of course, that's the relationship between uh, a, a slave, and, a, a Roman slave, and their master. And then he likens, he likens his followers to slaves. And as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, because we are slaves to Jesus Christ, we found that his slaves are obligated to do all that God commands eliminating the possibility of choice regarding obedience. In verse 10, if you look at verse 10 of the chapter, he says, So you also, so you also. He likens, he, he's making the comparison between the Roman slave and his master and Jesus Christ, his followers, and Jesus his master. When you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy slaves, we have only done what was our duty. So we are obligated, as as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am obligated to do all that God commands, which eliminates the possibility of choice regarding obedience. I don't get to pick and choose what I'm going to obey and what I'm not going to obey. He's the master. He tells me what I'm going to do and how I'm going to obey. I don't get to say, I'm going to check out on this one, Jesus. I I, I can't say that. I, I can say it. But in doing so, I'm walking in disobedience to Christ. Not only do I not have a choice, but we found out that we are obligated to obey. It is what we are supposed to do, eliminating the possibility of refusal regarding obedience. I can't refuse. Now, I do, but when I do so, I'm not behaving in in, in the identity that I've been given in Christ Because Jesus says it's what we're supposed to do. He says that in the text. So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, all that you were commanded, all that you were supposed to do, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done what we were supposed to do. And we also found that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to fulfill our obligation to Christ with this this, uh, attitude. When it says here that we are unworthy Servants or unworthy slaves. We looked at that that phrase there that's used for unworthy. We told you the Net Bible probably has the better understanding of that. Basically, the attitude is this. I am a slave undeserving of any special praise. If I follow Christ in obedience, there's no special praise. I, I, I've done what I'm just simply supposed to do. I've simply done what I'm supposed to do. You know, If, if I walk in to my wife and say, Honey, I didn't commit adultery today. You going to give me some praise for that? <laughs> She's so you're not going to give me a praise? Why? Because I've done. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. I don't get any, any brownie points because I was faithful to my wife today. It's something that I'm supposed to do. And when we as followers of Jesus Christ, when we, when we do all that he commands, we've just done what we're supposed to do. But as we ended last week, we said, but our, our master is so different. He heaps praise on slaves. And we, we don't have time to go back through that. But today what we want to focus on is on the duties that, that, that precipitated Jesus making this, this parable. Because the things that we are asked to do here are hard. They're difficult. They're not things we necessarily want to jump up and do. Because the text explains the complexities and the relational difficulties that exists at times between followers of Jesus Christ. A church is filled with sinners who have elders who are sinners, who have deacons and deaconesses who are sinners. And because the church is filled and led and served by sinners, sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to do. And sometimes we offend. And sometimes we we say things we shouldn't say. And sometimes we behave in ways we shouldn't behave. And sometimes we have to ask forgiveness and sometimes we have to seek forgiveness. And sometimes we have to, uh, uh, sometimes we're sinned against and sometimes we're the person that sins against someone else. But because there's such a proliferation of churches, usually when that happens is, is we get up and we move on. Rather than doing what God wants us to learn how to do and being being brothers and sisters in Christ, what it means to be that. So so our text looks at that today, and again, they're difficult things. These duties speak to how we are to relate to one another. As someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at today, it is my duty. It is my duty to watch carefully. It is my duty to relate appropriately, and it is my duty to trust completely. I'm to watch carefully. You're to watch carefully. You're to relate appropriately, and you're to trust completely. The first thing is found in the first first uh, two verses in the first the first phrase of verse three. Look, look at look in the text again, and, and look at look at verse the beginning of verse three, where Jesus makes the statement. It is translated in the ESV. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, it's uncertain. Whether this first phrase, "Pay attention to yourself," in verse three, refers to what precedes it, or what follows it, is Jesus telling you, "Okay, pay attention," and then he follows it. If your brother sins against you, you know, and, and so on and so forth, or is it referring to what precedes it? Uh, and a case can be made for either one, but but it, it but the majority of scholars agree, and I, and I think they're correct that this. Constant watch, the idea is, is to be watchful, pay attention. Uh, this is something you don't... It's not a once and done thing. It's something that we are to continually do. Something that we are to continually practice. The, 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 what Jesus is saying here is, is what, what as disciples of Christ, we are to be extremely cautious regarding the influence that we have upon other believers, especially those... ...who may be new or immature in the faith. We need to pay attention to the influence that we have on others within the church. Look at the text. He says, "...temptations to sin are to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck... And he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, the little ones here, we, we read that, and we automatically think about children. I don't. I don't think that's the idea here. I think that I, what, what the idea here is he's talking about those who are young in the faith, or those who are immature in the faith. We have influence. Listen, you have influence. All of us here have influence. Let me illustrate it this way. One of my, I don't. I don't think it's a bad habit, but it probably is. When when I suddenly realize that if I'm walking out the door and I get into my car and I'm getting ready to come to the church and I'm halfway here and I think I I forgot something, you know, I left it at the house. Maybe I left my laptop or left a book or whatever. Or if I drop a glass, uh, or if I do something like that, there will usually there's usually one word that comes out of my mouth when I do that. Now you're going, oh, she's going. I say, crap. I go crap, you know. Now, if, if that offends you, I'm sorry. Okay, I don't mean to offend. Up north where I grew up, that I mean nobody thought about that. I mean that, that no big deal. Down here, sometimes it's a little more touchy. I'll go crap or I'll go oh crap, and I, I just what I say. I, you know, I probably need to change on that, but that's just what I say. Here a couple of weeks ago, Cassie calls me up, and she says, "Dad, got something to tell you." I said, "Baby, tell me." And again, she said, "Well, Titus, Titus is 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 two. Uh, uh, he turned two in December. Uh, he had done something, and he was walking through the living room, going quap, 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 you know. And and she says, she says, baby, we, we don't we don't say that. And Titus says, Baba does, <laughs> you know, but Baba does. And she said, Dad, I just thought I'd pass that along to you. I said, honey, I'm the grandson. I'm the grandfather. So when he's at my house. Crap away, you know? And, 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 but, but anyhow, you know that, the purpose for me saying that is simply this. The question in our lives is not, do I have influence? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. The question, rather, is this. Is my influence edifying or corrupting? That's what's going on in this text. That's what's happening in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is saying, is your influence edifying or corrupting? Why does Jesus place such an importance on this issue? There's three reasons why in this text. The first is because it is impossible to avoid, and here's the Greek word, "scandal."a We get our word scandal from it it's impossible to avoid the scandala or the triggers and temptations of sin look back in the text temptations that's the word there scandala the, the, the word itself means it's the it, think of a of a trap and the trigger that's used it's like putting the cheese on the mouse trap and you know the mouse hits that trigger and gets you or a live trap you know the the bait that's put in the live trap and he he, that, that, that animal hits that, that bait in that live trap and that triggers it and it closes it. That's the idea of the word here. It's the idea of something that, that triggers or it's the temptation to sin. And Jesus says here, first of all, it is impossible to avoid the scandala or the triggers and temptations of sin. You cannot live in this world without, without the triggers and temptations of sin just coming at you. Just coming at you. Now, let me illustrate this, and you might be shocked by it, but I'm human just like anybody else. Lisa and I, when we had gone to Florida to pick up the vehicle, we're coming back and we're checking out at the hotel. We're checking out at the hotel, and Lisa's standing over, and I'm doing that. And as as I'm checking out, the woman bends over. She's wearing a low top, and it just falls out. Now, I would love to tell you that when that happened, I just went like this. Praise Jesus, you know, God's good. My eyes, before I knew it, my eyes did this. And I wasn't think, I wasn't lusting after the woman. I wasn't wanting the woman, but I just, they just went. and I I, physi- I shared this with my Bible study class. I physically had to do this. I put my head back. just so if my eyes are still down, at least they're looking this way, you know I just, I just put the head, I just put my head back. I wasn't thinking anything when that happened. I was, the only thing that was on my mind was checking out and getting on the road. But there, it is impossible to avoid the triggers of temptation. You can't avoid it. We live in a broken world and we are broken people, and sin has deformed us, sin has twisted us. And it is our natural tendency for that to happen. I, I watch my grandsons who, you know, the, the oldest is, is nine and then five and then, and then, and then, and then T- no, Titus is three and, and then three. And what happens when they see an attractive woman? I mean, and, and they're not little perverts, you know. They're They're boys. They're boys. And we cannot be, it's impossible to get away from that. So Jesus makes that say, temptations to sin are sure to come. None of us, all of us are going to be tempted this week. And it's not because we're necessarily looking for it. It's just going to come. But then look at what he says. But woe to the one through whom they come. Secondly, the text informs us, again, who's Jesus speaking to here? Again, the audience has changed. In chapter 15, 16, he's talking to the twelve as well as to the Pharisees, as well as to those outside of his circle. In chapter 17, and he said to his disciples, he said to his disciples, basically who Jesus is specifically talking to here is to the twelve. And because of that, he's suggesting that this scandala can come from within. In other words, triggers to to sin don't just come outside of the church. Triggers to sin can come from inside of the church as well. They just just don't happen outside of the church in the bad old nasty world. It happens inside inside of the church filled with saints who love Jesus. It happens. You know that. If you've been been a part of any church for any length of time, you know that. You know that. Sometimes you're the trigger. Sometimes I've been the trigger. Sometimes I've been triggered by somebody else. But it comes from within. Jesus says, woe to the one. In other words, this is one believer influencing another believer to sin against God by either violating his commands or violating their conscience. We we encourage them to violate. Because of our influence, we are encouraging to violate their commands or violate their conscience. Jesus says it can happen. And the third and final reason from this text why this is so important is because it relates to the fate of believers who cause the other believer to sin. Jesus uses the word woe. That word there is a pronouncement of condemnation from God. It is the strongest word that Jesus could have used for warning and condemnation in that culture and in that language. Woe. Woe. The warning is real and the punishment is harsh demonstrated by the graphic image of his punishment. Look at verse 2. Jesus says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone is part of what they use to grind, grind grain. It's heavy. It'd, it'd be like, here's how we'd put in our culture today. We're going to give you some cement shoes and shove you out in the middle of the ocean. You're not going to go anywhere except down. To me, I, I mean, I, I'm not a good swimmer. I don't tread water at all. Uh, to me, the worst way, for, for me, the worst way to die would be drowning. You know, because uh, I would be fighting trying and then just, you know. That, that, for me, that's the worst way to think about drowning. Dying is drowning. Jesus says it would be better to experience a harsh death, a cruel death, a difficult death, than to influence a brother or sister in Christ to sin and have to stand before God and give an account for that. That's why this is important for their protection and for my protection. A believer who is the instrument of another believer's stumbling is subject to God's judgment. A judgment that the text says is worse than a cruel death. And so as as someone who is a a follower of, of Christ, it is my duty to determine to be an edifying rather than a corrupting influence upon another believer. And listen... And we can do that. I mean, it can be just a, uh, you know, a a, a, uh, a careless word. You know, it can be a careless deed. Uh, it can be something that maybe we failed to do. It can be a, a look. I mean, it's not where we're saying, hey, you you want to come with me and go rob a bank after church? You know? We're not, we're, it can be something as, 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 as simple and benign as that. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful. And, and and you say, well, man, Greg, since we're all sinners, won't that happen a lot? Doesn't that have the possibility of happening a lot, a lot in the church? And my answer would be, yeah, it sure does. Which is why, secondly, out of duty to our master, Uh, to uh, to our master Jesus, every slave of his must, secondly, relate appropriately. Look at verses 3 and 4. Look at the text again. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. While verse 1 speaks about a certainty, when he says temptations are certain to come, I guarantee you, if it hasn't happened already, before the day's out, some temptation is going to just flash before you. It might be an angry word. It might be an angry thought it might be where you're just a little peeved at somebody or somebody irritated you. You're going to have something that just comes out of the blue and tempts you. But the way this te- th- th- these verses are written, the word if there, if your brother sins and if he repents, uh, if he sins against you, all those ifs, it's a third class condition in the Greek, which is simply means it's the furthest c- condition away from possibility. It's possible that something like this could happen. It's, po- it's speaking to a possibility. The, the, this, and, and, and so... It's not certain that it's going to happen, but it's possible that it's going to happen. And again, if, if, you've, if you've been in a church any length of time, it's going to happen. If, you, if you're a member of this church or become a member of this church, I can tell you somewhere along the line, it's going to happen. Because we're all broken. And we're sinners. And we don't always do and live the way that we should do and live. We're not always led by the Spirit. You know, sometimes I open my, you know, open, I'm like Peter, open my mouth and put my foot, put, not, boat, I put my feet, my legs, I mean, everything else I can just swallow down in there. The situation in this verse regards an incident of first, first, first hand knowledge. Somebody sins against me, or I actually see them sinning. This isn't, well, you know what so and so said about so and so and about so and so and about so and so. This is first hand knowledge more than primarily being sinned against or actually witnessing the sin that's taking place. And the point in these in this section is about relational commitments and responsibilities. In other words, what we have here is that when one disciple does a certain thing, other disciples have a certain responsibility. Because we have a connection, because we are brothers and sisters. I, I like what uh, we heard, Vodi Bacham, this week, and I, I really liked what he said about adoption. He said, "You know what makes me your brother?" And Vodi serves in Africa. Uh, he's a black man serving in Africa, and he says, "You know what makes me your brother?" Is because we've been adopted by the same father. I thought, man, that's good. I think about families that I know who are interracial families, and it's through adoption. Through adoption. And that's exactly what we're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. And because of that, he says, we have a relational commitment and responsibility. So what are those relation, relational commitments and responsibilities? Well, basically, Jesus says, if you have firsthand knowledge of a fellow believer's sin, out of duty to Christ, you are to confront. Look what he says in the text. If your brother sins, rebuke him. There's the first thing. An act of sin, a response of rebuke. Now, again, it's not when they say, well, you know, I, listen, i got to tell you because, you know, so-and-so, who was told by so-and-so, who was told by so-and-so, said this happened. Mm-mm. That's not what's going on here. Not little Gestapo agents running around and, you know, peeking under, under uh, you know, bedsheets and, and, and behind curtains and all that other stuff. This is, I've been sinned against. Or this is a sin that I've witnessed. Sin that I've witnessed. So an act of sin, a response of rebuke. That's hard. Isn't it hard? Isn't it hard to go to somebody and say, listen, man, I'm seeing some things in your life that really concerns me. Or when somebody sins against you, it's hard to go. I don't know about you, but the first thing I want to do is write them off. That's the first thing I want to do. You treat me like that, I'm done with you. I didn't didn't need you when I was born, and I ain't going to need you when I die. So I don't need you now. Act of sin, response of rebuke. Then he goes on, he says, in the text, he says, and if he repents, forgive him. So if the sinning individual repents, and again, he's talking about junior repentance here, where I admit what I've done, where I admit how it's hurt you, where I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm asking you to forgive me, and it's my desire not to do that again. Genuine repentance, not, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I just kind of, I mean, I don't know, I, 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 I'm sorry. But we are broken. I've sinned against you. I've crushed you. I've treated you not like someone created in the image of God. I've hurt you. And I'm responsible for this before God. And I'm genuinely, genuinely sorry for treating you with disrespect. Will you please forgive me? That's, that's, that's the idea. So this is not this is not just somebody walking in and kind of half-heartedly saying, Hey, uh, I'm sorry, Oh, can you get me a Coke on your way in from the kitchen? If there is a genuine act of repentance, the response forgiveness now that, that's hard but it gets harder look at the next verse and if he sins against you seven times in the day and the implication is it's the same sin and turns to you seven times saying I repent it's genuine repentance you if you got an ESV what's the next word must. You must forgive him. Now, is Jesus actually now, I mean, that normally doesn't happen? That normally doesn't happen. We normally don't repeat the same sin over and over. But I guarantee you, this has been my experience, and I'm sure it's your experience. I sin against my wife. And I mean, and I'm, genu- I'm genuinely repentive. And I genuinely don't want to do it again. But guess what? I have I have I've, I've, I've done it again. I have treated her with disrespect. I've been harsh with my words. I've ignored her. I've I I I I I I I'm, I've her like I I I wish I could say say in all of our relationships that, that, boy, something happens, and you ask that person to forgive you, and and you say, listen, I don't ever want to do this again, and then you never do it again. But we're broken people living in a broken world, and we haven't been glorified yet. What Jesus is talking about here is because of the nature of people, because of the nature of people, and because of, 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 of the nature of, 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 of repentance and forgiveness, because of the nature of people, repentance and forgiveness will be frequent practices. If you want to walk with God, you're going to have to frequently repent. And if you're going to walk with God, you're going to have to frequently forgive. And basically what Jesus uses the example of seven, he's not given a particular number. The, the point that he's trying to stress is this. Don't stop repenting and don't stop forgiving. Don't stop repenting and don't stop forgiving. When you sin, repent. And if you do it again the next week, re, genuinely repent. And, and, and again, we don't have you know begin growing and grow, until that time. Repent. Repent. And then forgive and forgive and forgive. Hard things. Hard things. But Jesus goes on. What, how are we going to do this? Well, finally, out of duty to master Jesus, every slave must trust completely. Now, thinking about all that we've said, doesn't the response of the apostles make sense? Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord... <laughs> Increase our faith. Increase our faith. But look at Jesus' response. He said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, who's by the way, these trees would live to be about five, 600 years old, and their root systems went really, really deep into the ground. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, plant it in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what, what's going on here? Do we need to start talking to trees? I mean, what, what's going on here? after Jesus tells them what is required of them as disciples. The disciples say to Jesus, help develop our faith. Notice they're not asking for the gift of faith, but rather an addition to their faith. They admit they have faith, but what they're saying that they don't have is enough faith to do this. They're asking Jesus to increase and deepen their faith in order that they may carry out these difficult responsibilities. But notice how Jesus shifts the focus. Faith is not a matter of quantity, but rather presence. They say increase our faith. Jesus says, if you just got a little bit, faith like a grain of mustard seed. Mustard seed was the smallest seed that they had. If you just had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could see some extraordinary things happen. Faith is not a matter of quantity. Those that tell you, well, you know, listen, you just got to have more faith. It's not a matter of quantity. It's not a matter. That's a, that's a cop-out when somebody says that to you. Faith is not a matter of quantity. Because that's what these disciples asked Jesus. They said, Jesus, increase our faith so we can do these things. And Jesus says, whoa, you don't need more faith. You just need to have the presence of faith in your life. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of presence. The point that Jesus is making is this. is that a little, Just a little bit of genuine faith can accomplish a great deal. We don't have to pray for more faith. All we gotta say, Lord, help me to have just a little genuine faith. It is not the amount of faith that prevents results. Rather, it's the absence of faith. Now, by explaining that, let me bring this into context. What commands has Jesus given to his disciples that we've looked at? Well, he said, first of all. I want you to be a person who edifies in their influence and not corrupting in your influence. But that's hard to do because we live in a world where temptations, the triggers to tempt, to tempt, to tempt us, just are out there. <laughs> they happen all the time. Billboards, uh, a, 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 a commercial, uh, a song on the radio, um, a a, a wrong look, um, a a, a misunderstood tone, anything. And because of that, they can also come with inside the church. It can also happen with inside the church because the church is filled with broken people, people who know the Lord, but we're still broken people. So it's going to be hard for somebody not to be a trigger to sin to somebody else. It's, it's hard. He's also commanded them that when you see someone, either when you've been sinned against or you see someone sin, talk to them. When they sin against you, don't write them off. Go talk to them. Confront them. Other places in the scripture tell us we're to lovingly confront them. We, 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 talk, we, we want to restore that relationship. Our tendency is wanting just to get rid of it. But Jesus says, I want you, because you're brothers and sisters. You have the same dad. You've been adopted by the same father. So it is imperative for you to seek, and all that you can possibly do, to restore that relationship. You confront them with their sin. And if they genuinely repent, you forgive them. That's hard to do, because we want to hold on to the hate. We want to hold on to the, to the grievance. But then he says, but also, Jesus recognizes our, our, the, 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 our, our propensities and our tendencies because of our broken humanity. He reminds us that forgiveness is something that frequently has to happen, and repentance is something that frequently has to happen. Now, how difficult. ...is the fulfillment of these commands. Does anybody think they're easy? They're not. Is it possible to fulfill them? Well, this text would give you a resounding, yes, it is. You can do that. You can forgive people when they sin against you. You can seek forgiveness when you sin against somebody else. And even if it happens more than one occasion... ...you can still repent and you can still forgive. You can still confront... And you can be an edifying influence. How? By trusting God completely. It's not the amount of faith, but the presence of faith. God, as Jubal prayed, God, we're weak. We're unable. But you are able. And you are strong. And you are omniscient. And you are omnipresent. And God, I don't have it within me to do it. But I believe that your power can accomplish in me what I am not able to accomplish on my own. And I'm going to trust you. My faith is weak, but it's there. I believe that you are able to accomplish these things to where I can forgive and I can repent and I can be an influence for good. God, help me. Help me. Trusting God completely, not the amount of faith, but the presence. How's faith increased? This text would simply answer it this way, by simply having it. (laughs) And watching it produce significant results. How do we get faith? Well, Scripture answers that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I believe God's word. I take God at His word and recognize that it's God that's going to give me that ability. It's God that works in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure, Philippians chapter 2. Why do we need it? Because the presence of even a little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things. I can be a better husband if I just have a little bit of genuine faith because it's God working in me. I can be a better father, I can be a better grandfather, I can be a better pastor, I can be a better human being, I can be a better citizen of the place where I live at. I mean, I was shocked at how I, how, I mean, I was talking to everybody. I was talking to the Uber driver, I talking, I mean, uh, Lamont. He's the guy that checked us in, and Darius. I mean, I got to talk to them. I gave him my card. I said, how can I pray for you? I thought, man, this isn't me. I'm usually the guy that goes, nice to meet you. Why? It's God at work. God at work. Followers of Jesus Christ are slaves called to specific duties of service. And these duties can and will be fulfilled when you and i possess genuine faith it's not a matter of how the amount of faith but merely its presence a little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things our faith is in god and in his power and in his ability it's not hey man i got lots of faith so god got to do something no God, my faith is, is weak. My faith is not very strong. But God, I'm not looking to me. I'm looking to You. You change me. You grow me. You work through me. So that You get the glory. You get the glory. A little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things. Do you want to be a person of edifying influence? A little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things. Do you need to have a difficult conversation? A little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things. Are you struggling with forgiveness? A little genuine faith can accomplish marvelous things. Do you have a problem asking for forgiveness? A little genuine faith can accomplish a lot of marvelous things. All Jesus... Just have the, just have, just, it's not the amount. It's just the presence. Are you looking to God? God, I don't have it within me. I don't even want to do it. But it's my duty as a slave to your son to do this. Work in and through me for your glory. I believe I'm not able. But you are. Please, work. Through me to accomplish your good. And finally, do you have a faith based relationship with God through Jesus Christ? You don't have to be perfect to be accepted by God. You don't have to have it all together to be accepted by God. You don't have to be a church member or to be baptized or to sing well or stand behind a pulpit. Or teach a Sunday school class to be accepted by God. In fact, you can do all those things and God will never, 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 never accept you. Because our acceptance by the Father is accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've never heard it, let me tell you how wonderful He is. We're all broken. We're all sinners. None of us can please God because God demands perfection. And that ended for me a long time ago. But God, instead of throwing us away, which He'd had every right to do, because He created us, instead chose to redeem. God, in His marvelous wisdom and grace and mercy and compassion, and in His justice and righteousness, and holiness. God the Son took upon our flesh and became one of us and lived a life of perfection to God. He never sinned. Never, never, ever, ever disappointed God. And He offered up His life and His blood as a substitutionary sacrifice He died in your place. He died in my place. He took God's wrath for my sin. And He took God's wrath for your sin. And He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. And the Father accepted His sacrifice. The resurrection proves it. The resurrection proves it. And there's only one way to be acceptable to God. It's putting your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, I can't do anything. But you've provided a way. You've provided a way. Forgive me. And by faith I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that I'm in need of a Savior. And forgive me. And be the Savior and Lord of my life. And when you do that, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. And you remain a child of God forever. Who can separate me from the love of God? Tribulation. Famine? No. Persecution? No. Height? No. Depth? No. My own self? No. Any other creature? Demons? No. Nothing can separate me from the love of God through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit at that moment indwells you and seals you and you forever are a child of God. My hope of seeing God when I die is not based on anything else except the fact that as a boy, I said, Lord, save me. Save me. That's my hope. And I hope that's your hope. And if it's not your hope, It can be your hope today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for our hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this text today and for the realness of it. Father, that you deal with us who we are. You don't want us to stay there. You want to form and fashion us into the image of your Son. But, for, but Father, your word speaks the truth about the reality of what it means to be human. What it means to be a broken human, a sinful human, even a saved human. So, Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us to think about this truth. Help us, Father, to desire to be. We're all we are we all are influencers. Help our influence, Father, to be. Edifying and uplifting rather than corrupting. Father, help us to have those hard hard conversations when we need to. Help us to listen when someone needs to have a hard conversation with us. Give us ears to hear. Father, help us to, to quickly forgive. And Lord, to do it frequently. Help us, Father, to be quick to repent and to do it frequently us to deal with the beam in our own eye before we deal with the speck in the others. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it drives us to our knees, that it drives us to you, that it's not something that we can accomplish in our own strength and through our own desires and through our own wisdom, through our own craftiness and through our our own uh, abilities. Father, it's done because we are living in dependence upon you. When we are weak, then we're strong. Father, we thank you that your strength is perfected in our weakness, that your glory is seen in our frailty. Father, we ask now that you'd speak to our hearts today and that we would respond appropriately, that we would worship you in our response by yielding in those areas of our lives where we need to yield. By praising you in those areas of our lives where we've seen growth and, 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 and maturity. By grieving over those areas of our lives, Father, where, where, we, where we struggle greatly. And where we've been uh, resistant to your work of grace in our lives. Father, for those that may not know Christ, help them to see that all they need is, is to get rid of, of, uh, to lay aside their, their thoughts, their prejudices, their ability, and humble themselves before You and admit their need and find that Your grace is all sufficient. Father, thank You for the wonder of who You are, for Your work of grace in our lives. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we do not have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. We invite You today don't know Christ as your Savior, to cry out to Him right now, if you haven't already. And if you do so, we'd love to speak with you after the services. We have, we have women that can speak with women and, and, and men that can speak with men and, and talk to you about your need today. If you, you've got questions, becoming a child of God isn't something just sometimes happens overnight. It can be a long, drawn-out process, just as birth, labor pains can be, can be lengthy or can be short. It's different with every one of us. For those of us who are believers here today, we've been been given a very, very difficult responsibility that Christ expects us to fulfill. It's our duty. It's our duty. But it's not going to happen without the power of Christ. It's not going to happen with just a little genuine faith. Run, Run to God in your weakness. Run to Him. In, 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 in your your desperateness run to him in your failures and admit to him that, that, that your faith is small that your faith is weak it's not a matter of increasing our faith it's a matter of having faith in him and rest in what he can do for you go to the Lord in a time of silence And we'll pray and continue our worship through our giving.